This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Have you considered joining us on a Cultural Debris excursion this summer? We are traveling to Salzburg, the birthplace of Mozart, as well as to the Bavarian Alps in Obermergau on back-to-back weeks. Now is the time to let us know of your interest, or if you want more information, you can email me at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. March has long been my favorite month. My birthday was a few days ago, and the NCAA College Basketball Tournament starts this week. Normally, that's a fun time, but while my hopes are high, they are tempered by recent bitter experience. Fingers crossed. It's good to find some encouragement in the natural world, however. Late planted crocuses have begun to emerge in my yard. I'm making mental notes for next fall's bulb plantings. I made a jaunt up to Cincinnati last week for a podcast interview coming your way in a future episode and found myself in a couple of used bookstores while there. Dutenhofer's Books is a great spot to visit, and I left with a few items, including a volume of the uncollected P.G. Woodhouse, complete with a Malcolm Muggeridge foreword, plus a volume of Max Beerbaum's writings. My visit to downtown's The Ohio Bookstore didn't lead to any purchases, but it's always fun to explore their four stories of used books. Our poem today is one I have been working on to memorize, The Lake Isle of Innisfree by William Butler Yeats. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin built there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always night and day I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. My guest is writer Eric Twardzik, a regular in such publications as The Rob Report, W.M. Brown, and Drake's Online. His focus is men's clothing as well as the drink scene. We discuss classic American ivy style, its expression in such places as Italy and Japan, Eric's visit to Kentucky, and the rise of the white Negroni. Plus, Eric discusses a sheep-to-suit tailoring project. Join me as I talk with Eric Twardzik. Eric Twardzik, welcome to Cultural Debris. Thank you so much for uh, having me, Alan. 
I appreciate you being on. You're uh, all the all the way from uh, from far New England in Boston. How are things in Boston these days? Ah, uh, today's pretty nice and sunny. I kind of wish it was colder. I love my you know my tweeds, my heavy corduroys, and this kind of lukewarm winter is disappointing. It's uh, kind of winter where it's warm, but it's still cold. It's just very wet. Uh, lots of rain. I was really hoping for more snow. Yeah, I, you know. I'm I'm a little bit torn on a lot of that. We had like some frigid cold a little bit before Christmas, which uh, the problem with with that weather is that you can't. It, it's not really good dressing weather either because you have to bundle up in actual like um, in gear that really really requires thermal <laughs> thermal uh, uh, action there. Where you know sort of it gets it gets even too cold for just sort of normal cold weather weather, and then. Um, then lately it's been a little bit too warm. I, I went out uh, earlier today and didn't even wasn't even able to wear a scarf. It was uh, it was it was quite tragic. Mm, yes, yes, I, I I very much feel you on that. <laughs> I've I've already I've purchased two scarves already this this winter, and I uh, I wasn't able able to wear either one of them. Those those have gone in the uh, the great pile of scarves. I have a little bit of a scarf problem. I. Oh, I, think I, I, I recognize that from Instagram. I think I share. <laughs> well, yeah, it's that's that's just the the sadly the tip of the iceberg. I'm afraid I might have to stack them all up some sometime. But the the problem with that is that then there would be a record. Sometimes uh, sometimes I have people ask me, "Oh, do you know how many uh, how many of X you have?" and my answer is always no, I don't, <laughs> and, and there and there may be a reason for that. So. Uh, I try to try to avoid any kind of audits uh, on on issues like that. Well, you are a uh, you're a writer in um, in both the uh, menswear uh, area, also travel, also uh, drinks and restaurants and that sort of thing. Which is why your Instagram is one of my favorites to live through vicariously, and uh, certainly one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast because you uh, you get to do all the fun things. Oh, thank you, Alan, and I'll assure you the the day to day is much more mundane than my online activity describes. But it's very kind of you. Well, you know, of course, that's the purpose of the online activity to keep everybody. Uh, Keep, to to show our best moments, but you have some you have some very good best moments. You know, you're popping over to the to the Andover shop and that sort of thing. And that's uh, you know we have some nice shop or two in uh, in Lexington, but uh, you know Andover shop is such an iconic spot. Is that a is that a regular hangout of yours? Ah, uh, it is. It's a place very near and dear to my heart, and in many ways, kind of uh, shaped my outlook of style and you know, the world largely, but. Uh, yeah, just for anyone who's not familiar, the Andover Shop, it's uh, a business that began in Andover, Massachusetts, uh, just 75 years ago this year. And uh, it was there to service the famous Andover Phillips boarding school. And then they opened a second location, Harvard Square, in, I should know this, but I believe, yes, 1952. But has quite a storied reputation. Uh, the owner of it, a guy named Charlie Davidson, who passed away a few years ago. He worked there every day till his, he was 91. And he was responsible for outfitting these young jazz musicians like uh, Miles Davis, Chet Baker, Bobby Short, who came to Boston because they were going to be playing the Newport Jazz Fest. And they would come in these you know, big, ridiculous zoot suits 
and he'd outfit them in what we recognize today as a you know classic kind of soft shoulder ivy style look and really created that you know i think still enduring image of the jazz musician in like a natty uh, knit tie and a soft shoulder you know flannel gray suit that was very much uh yeah came thanks to that shop and the people who were there at the time uh I was introduced to by a friend who worked there in college and then, you know, became a customer myself, gave me kind of my first experience in custom clothing and uh, actually worked there myself for a time uh, over the last year, kind of on and off. And I still occasionally will go in if someone's sick or traveling and I have my key at home. So uh, it's very, very near and dear to my heart. Well, that's a good place to have uh, have a little bit of insider access to. I, I would think I've I've never had the opportunity to visit. I've of course been aware of it for for many years and uh, have an item or two from from Andover in my uh, own possession. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, you know, it's it's always had kind of the reputation of. Um, I guess not always being welcoming to outsiders. At least that was kind of the kind of the the story that people would tell. That you know people would go in and ask for the wrong thing and be yelled at or anything. But I'm, I'm sure that you would never do that. To oh, I would not myself. That is very true. Uh, historically, that was the reputation. Um, you know, had kind of had this clubhouse feel, and sometimes you're kind of in, you're in. Not everyone was in. I would say. I think you get uh, a warmer greeting at the door these days. Uh, I'm a colleague there, a younger guy who's uh, the shopping Jake, who's great and very much instituted a uh, you know hello policy to bring through the door, but <laughs> hasn't lost uh, you know his character. What makes it special by any means? Well, yeah, you still you you know you still want it to have uh, have the traditional vibe, although um, you know you don't you don't want to feel like you're going to be berated if you've uh, if you've if you've stepped out of line, I guess. But you know, it's it's one of the great um, the great shop names, like of course, like J Press. Probably J Press is a little bit more widely known because uh, they've had shops in you know in, in more places uh, over the years. But um, but it's it's a stalwart like that, and we're you know seemingly ha- have fewer and fewer of those. Uh, whereas, you know, where we used to have Brooks Brothers uh, and uh, Brooks Brothers, of, as as it once was, really is is no more and hasn't been for a few years. So uh, it's it's nice to see shops like Andover carrying on uh, at least as long as they can. Well, yeah, that's the thing where, you know, it's uh, among people who are into this sort of thing, you know, of it. it's not a household name nationally, but becoming a customer there, I realized, uh, you know, just how much influence the store and also those of its ilk had had. Uh, I mean, I love Ralph Lauren. I'll always love Ralph Lauren. Uh, but after I became an Andover Shop customer, I kind of realized to a large extent, this is what kind of Ralph Lauren's been emulating for all this time in these years. This is kind of the, uh, you know, the real deal that much of the polo line, the kind of more Ivy style stuff was based on. Uh, and then similarly, it's, you know, kind of, you know, you can still see what Brooks Brothers may have been like at one point. And, you know, in a, if someone is interested in like a small C conservative way of loving classical architecture, uh, you know, clothing, things that are still evoking an earlier age that many of his contemporaries 
may have slipped into the past, but they still exist. Andover Shop is uh, very much a piece of that, of a still surviving member from another cultural moment that has largely receded. Yeah, you you know, occasionally we'll we'll read articles um, about you know the resurgence of interest in in fine clothing and so forth, and one is always hopeful, but. Um, the recent lockdowns of a couple of years ago didn't help things, and uh, and I I don't know I don't know what we're going to be able to get back uh, from uh, from a lot of that uh, before time uh, uh, dre- emphasis on dress and sort of classic attire. It's very true, and this is where I try not to be too much of a pessimist myself. But the truth is that I mean wearing a jacket and a tie. This has all been in decline for such a long time that I think the experience of COVID hastened things. It kind of hit fast forward a little bit, but it's not like we were at a golden age that was you know, suddenly uh, struck and then everything went in decline. I think just kind of press the fast forward button on what things have been going towards for a long time. Why I do find, you know, I also don't want to be too pessimistic or one of those people who's moaning in the comment section, Ivy style, about how the whole world. <laughs> but I think that there are people doing more interesting things with tailoring these days or a sense that people who are still interested in it are doing things that are a little more interesting. They're not just getting a basic Navy suit because they have to and they could care less. They're commissioning I mean, my experience when I was working at the end of her shop, we didn't see too many suits being made. Chiefly, it was for someone because they were getting married or a big life event. But people got sport jackets and, you know, they'd be picking out very interesting colors and patterns and more vibrant linings. And there was something a little more fun and celebratory about the tailoring people were commissioning. And a lot of it inspired me quite a bit. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of um a lot of tailoring really has come back full circle to the kind that kind of soft shoulder uh tailoring that we see back you know in the fifties and sixties uh from brooks brothers j press andover all all the big names which were kind of for a while sort of derided as just sort of this american style but but it's really kind of come back um, via Italy, I think. Uh, the, the Italians really embrace that very, uh, very soft shoulder, um, you know, shirt-like fit, and it's it, it's kind of it's sort of circled back and hip again. I think. I would agree with that. I think that it makes Ivy style, you know, kind of newly relevant because. The whole charm of Ivy style was that it was a dress-down aesthetic. People sometimes think of it and they imagine someone in a striped bow tie and a blue blazer and, you know, they're very natty and buttoned up. But the truth is that it was, you know, wearing a pair of odd flannel trousers and a tweed jacket was, to use a cliche, kind of the original street style. It was people dressing down far more than their contemporaries would be. And at the time, it was, you know, almost looked at the way we look at wearing you know, sweatpants and a jacket today. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you, you've got, uh, we, we have in our modern society such a you know, sort of a skewed, skewed idea of quote unquote dressing up, right? But, 
but you take uh, sort of the, the classic uh, button-down shirt, uh, flannel trousers, or maybe khakis, uh, but, you know, but, but everything's soft. Uh, you've got tassel loafers or penny loafers. Uh, it, it, was, it was a very uh, kind of, in a lot of ways, even sort of countercultural kind of look uh, that, that was a very dressed-down dressing up. Ah, uh, yes, precisely. And I think that, you know, it, it's, I'm stealing a phrase from my all-time favorite brands, I feel kind of personifies this, Drake's, which their tagline is relaxed elegance. And that's the thing I really enjoy. Even just a pair of, you know, khakis with a good drape and a button-down collar with a good soft roll, you know, just the two of those things together are beautiful combination. And this is maybe an effect of being in a dressed-down world, but just even wearing, you know, a uh, button-down collar shirt you iron does kind of put you ahead of the fold. You know, I've been asked why am I so dressed up just wearing a button-down shirt and a pair of khakis, for instance. Right. Uh, but then again, it does, you know, I think allow you to look, you put in more effort, like just a little bit more elegant while not looking as if you spent, you know, an hour at home, you know, getting your braces on and, uh, putting your cufflinks in and all of that kind of dandies that we might associate with, you know, a uh, higher degree of dressing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it is, um, it is, it is good to see uh, Ivy uh, plugging along at, at least as long as I'm able to, uh, to walk around and, and get dressed. Ivy at least will have a little bit of a home uh, with me. And I think with you as well, what, what, really originally tr- attracted you to Ivy? How did you get into the to Ivy, uh, Ivy style? Sometimes I question that. Uh, I have nothing like in my own upbringing that would involve that. I'm from Pennsylvania originally from a small kind of former coal mining town. And uh, I went to college in Boston, Emerson College. And I think where it kind of comes to me, and I will say this is definitely kind of silly, but my freshman year of college, I recall uh, Ralph Lauren used to have this sub-brand called Ralph Lauren Rugby. Oh, uh, yes. That the, late lim- the late lamented rugby. Very much so, of the uh, embroidered skull chino fame, which I did own a pair of. And they had this wonderful store on Newberry Street that was very much in the way that only Ralph Lauren does, created this entire like fantasy world you can walk into that was very much a kind of dream of like a 1920s Ivy League campus, very much, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, this side of paradise. And it all kind of came together in this moment for me where I was for 18, going to college in a new city, a new place, new people, very exciting. And I was, as a pretentious English major, reading this side of paradise and going to the rugby store. And even though it was, you know, 100 years after this time period pictured, I kind of got into that fantasy of that, you know, early 20th century Ivy League kind of clothing and look. And as many people do in college, you can experiment with a new identity or aesthetic. And that became part of it. I would sneak off to rugby whenever there was any kind of sale and pick out anything that was marked down. And I had this great collection of, I mean, I'm sure if I saw it today and how it fit, maybe my opinion would be different, but I had this collection of their you know, very ivy button-down shirt with a back collar button, the lock, locker loop and all the details in all these colors, like robin's egg blue and yellow and purple. And I would just wear them 
constantly with like jeans and kind of some penny loafers and just became part of this new like uniform identity I assumed after college. And the way I address regards to what you might describe as Ivy has changed very much in the 14 or so years since, but that was kind of the, uh, you see, incepting event. And it's never quite gone out of my system, even though it's changed. Well, there are worse things uh, than to be inspired by the rugby line. It was, it was a, uh, for those who don't know, and, the, and, and probably most uh, haven't even heard of it, because it was kind of a, a short-lived uh, Ralph Lauren sub-brand that was um, pitched to a, a little bit of a younger crowd, I guess, uh, that kind of college age, um, a little a little slimmer fit, um, but it had very much of a retro vibe to it. Uh, like you said, more kind of, uh, 1920s, a lot of ways, the, the neckties of which I have a couple floating around in my, in my necktie, uh, hanger, uh, were, it were, were sewn in that old, if anybody's ever seen one of the old vintage ties where the, where the back, uh, blade is is almost as wide as the front blade kind of kind of thing um he he emulated that beautifully i mean i obviously would have used vintage ties as patterns and so forth so uh, in club a lot of club collars that sort of thing uh, yes. that they sold uh, and they were you know they went a little overboard i think in some ways uh there were a lot of i own them myself i still do but you know sweaters with embroidered ducks on them and hunters and lots of you know rep stripes on the inside collar of shirts it was and this is another discussion but in the ivy versus preppy spectrum it leaned kind of all the way into preppy uh, yeah i don't think there's any yeah i don't think there's any question about that it's it's sort of what brooks brothers was doing with red fleece i think red i think that yeah. was kind of what brooks brothers wanted to do with red fleece mm-hmm. um, when they were doing that a couple a well, couple of years ago part of that whole moment in like you know I guess I would say kind of first Obama term of like Gantt rugger and red fleece and rugby. And that was kind of the first great like prep revival, which coincided with one of their deep cut, what was referred to as hashtag menswear, which was the rise of Tumblr <laughs> and blogs. And was really kind of, I guess, my origin story, I would say. I was a college student and I was just on, you know, GQ and looking at Tumblr and a continuous lean and really kind of, at the time, I remember thinking, like, I want to be a menswear blogger. And 14 <laughs> years later, I get paid real money to write about menswear in some websites and magazines. And I don't think that 18-year-old me could believe that things turned out so well. But they have. And you know, I'm always kind of looking for the next thing. But I've been very lucky to actually write about those things. And people look at them. And I'm very, very, very fortunate. Well, you have far surpassed any discussions that uh, that we used to have on the Ask Andy uh, Trad Forum oh, years ago. <laughs> uh, but but you you really uh, you are kind of living the living the men's the hashtag menswear life. You recently got back from Italy and uh, uh, having traveled there myself last year is always a good place to be. So what what took you to Italy on this trip? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So I was, I was not Pity Wilmo, but I went to Venice with uh, my wife just for a weekend with the two of us, which if anyone who follows me online may notice I posted nothing regarding that. But my wife and I have a hard rule with uh, when we're together traveling, you know, there's no posting on Instagram. If it's myself, it's for work, certainly, but together, 
we just keep it to ourselves in terms of social media. But we've had a wonderful time. Uh, my wife had never been there. I had been to Venice, but not since. Well, I went there once in high school on a trip, then once briefly when I was college age with my parents, but not really as yeah, just like a full fledged adult. And we spent a week there, which was incredible. It's you know just a beautiful city. A lot's been said on that account. It was the kind of thing where uh, every day for a week upon my return, I just dreamt about wandering the whole cityscape. It's, it's it is very dreamlike. It's very special. Um, I did encounter, and my wife fortunately suffered through this on uh, my account, but what I kind of thought was Venice's equivalent to the Andover shop, a store called, if I could say it right, El Busi, B-U-O-S-I, I believe. And I've been there since, I think, 1896, uh, in a spot otherwise very touristy. It's right by the Rialto Bridge. But it was this wonderful old men's store. I could tell it was in the right place because there was kind of a grumpy, well-dressed Italian man with white hair and a tie and a jacket who, you know, I was trying on, I found this kind of Val Star-like suede jacket and I was looking at the mirror and the guy kept coming over to me and telling me I was kind of wearing it wrong. I was trying to pull it down too much. <laughs> and, you know, blouse soon jacket with the ribbing should kind of sit on your waist and allow it to be, uh, you know, puff out a little bit. So I thought, okay, it's an old school men's store. There's, you know, a dressed up staff who's vaguely disapproving of what I'm doing. This is the kind of place I should be in. And uh, I, I did find that I did pick up a jacket, which was marvelous. And it was wonderful to wear there when it was about 50 degrees every day. Now I realize I won't be wearing it for maybe two months. But Venice was inspiring in terms of style in other ways, too. Uh, particularly when we were there, we got there on Christmas Day. And on Christmas Day and the day after, it was Venice. You always would want to experience it, where there were very, to us, seemed very few tourists there. There were lots of locals. When we went out on Christmas Day to get uh, you know, our aperitivi, and then we had a dinner at Harry's Bar. We saw all these Italian families out, the you know, grandson, uh, father, grandfather, wearing dark ties and dark suits or jackets. <clears throat> And there's a very interesting Venetian style I saw the whole week where being in their location, they're so close to Austria, to Central Europe, there were so many uh, loading coats and those kind yes. of felt Tyrolean hats. And it felt to me it was like Central European kind of, you know, very old school, more, more like, you know, Austro-Hungarian Empire kind of outerwear and clothing, but in much more vibrant colors or worn more vibrant colors, which I think is more typically Italian. And that combination was very niche and just very interesting to me. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I uh, was in uh, Genoa back in October, November, and was able to visit a couple of, um, a couple of sort of vintage shops, uh, you know, consignment type stores and also one in Rome. And in, in both uh, both of those places, I came across uh, so, some of those loading coats like you're talking about, which I wasn't really expecting. Uh, but uh, but but it's definitely something that the Italians have adopted from, um, like you said, sort of the, uh, the old Austro-Hungarian vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, but but of course, doing it with typical Italian aplomb. Yeah, that's what I really enjoy seeing is how people adopt from other 
aesthetics, clothing from other cultures, and work it into their own. I mean, going back to Ivy style, you know, so much of that is kind of Anglo style and clothing imported to the States from England and then worn in its own way in America, which, you know, varies in each place. As I'm sure you know, it can mean very different things in the South. I think the South does so much more color. Uh, you know, thinking of places like Sid Mashburn and uh, H. Stockton, you know, there can be a little more sense of, uh, I don't want to say outlandishness, but just, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, that's probably true, but or, you know, I, I think so. Well, I mean, coming to Italian uh, with more color and more exuberance. Uh, I mean, the Andover shop is also very interesting in that it is, I think it kind of puts um, the lie to the notion that there is, you know, some hard and fast rules to Ivy style, which always bugs me where, you know, ivystyle.com commenters, uh, saying that something has, you know, oh, it has a side vent, it's not a center vent, or it's has darts. It can't be Ivy's is terrible, but so many of those things are fungible. For instance, the Andover shop, which is held up as this temple of Ivy, which it certainly is, but you know, the jackets that are made there that come in, they're almost entirely made with side vents. Uh, a lot of them have hacking, you know, slanted pockets, the ticket, all of which are considered more, you know, British classically features. But then at the same time, the jackets are made with that very American soft shoulder. And the you know, uh, owner who had referenced before, Charlie Davidson, was known for wearing, uh, you know, just uh, spread collar shirts and you know, trousers with uh, side gestures. And again, features that feel a little more kind of Savile Road than American Ivy style, but it's the blending of them that makes it interesting. And that's what Ivy style is all about, is blending those influences, whether it's, uh, you know, the English tweeds or the Indian madras, and just finding new uh, context for that clothing to be worn. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. You know, it's interesting you're talking about uh, finding the shop uh, in Venice. When I was in Genoa, I came across uh, a, a place called Galino, and I, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Galino. But it's a very old store, over, founded in the late uh, 19th century. But it is very self-consciously uh, kind of Anglo-Ivy. Uh, they use... Um, they use the British flag a lot in their branding. Uh, they carry, you know, bass penny loafers. They carry Shetland sweaters, uh, lots of emblematic ties. Uh, but but they also emphasize that they do a lot of their own manufacturing in Genoa. So I think they, like, they do all their ties there and that kind of thing. So it, it was a very intriguing place. Um, I mean, I, I think... Uh, from what I understand of Andover shop, I think it's, it's kind of like that vibe, you know, it was dark wood, uh, very multiple floors, just very much, uh, had that clubby feel to it. And, um, you know, that store has been there for, for a long time in a, you know, slightly out of the way place like Genoa, but has really pushed very, uh, very consciously this kind of, Anglo-American, uh, Ivy, uh, you know, bar, barber, corduroy, penny loafer, that kind of thing, uh, vibe. Oh, yeah. So there's one thing I forgot to mention was, uh, Venice was also a great barber jacket city, which, you know, makes sense, uh, given the rain and the occasional flooding, 
but also inspired by the amount of barbers I'd seen there, far more than elsewhere in Italy. But broadly speaking a little more, it's interesting just how much mileage the whole kind of Anglo Ivy thing gets across the globe. Uh, one of my favorite books on, you know, it's, it's about men's words, also about culture, but the book Amatora by a writer in Tokyo named mm, yes. Stephen Marks. Uh, if any readers yeah, haven't I've, read it. I've read that book. It's very good. Oh, it's fabulous. Uh, but just, you know, I think uh, there's something universal. And for uh, listeners who haven't read it, it basically tracks the phenomenon of what's called Amatora, which is, uh, you know, Japanese made garments that kind of are inspired by Americana. And it begins with the story of in 1960s post-war Japan adopting Ivy League and getting very intense about having magazines, having brands. And it goes on to the craze for vintage American in Japan and Levi's. And then eventually when there was kind of no more vintage to import from America because it had been scooped up, these Japanese brands emerged that are making, you know, kind of vintage looking American clothes better than America was at the time or perhaps ever did. But there is kind of a universal story beyond it of just, you know, being interested in whether it's in their culture or in their time or place. But the way that you can kind of just so strangely uh, feel yourself so attached to something different. And one of the ways to approach that is through clothing, which I very much experienced through my whole life and interest in wearing clothes. If if you want to follow some really good menswear accounts, you you really uh, on Instagram, you really need to break into Japanese menswear accounts oh, yes. because because those guys are, are hardcore and just and and have uh, you know such a such a good eye and um, and and are so meticulous with with the way they approach things. They're um, you know always uh, a, a wonder to behold. The, the story that, that blew my mind in Amatora, you, you mentioned uh, scooping up the, the vintage Levi's, was, was when they sort of the, the vintage Levi's craze started in Japan. This is what, probably in the 80s. And that was waning. Those sorts of uh, things were waning in the U.S. And they sent pickers over from Japan to travel to all of these small town uh, cities in, or the small town shops in, in the U.S., a lot of which were going out of business, uh, were kind of slow, out of the way, and they would find these dead stock American clothes, particularly old denim, and they would buy it. And before before things started taking off in the U.S., the Japanese had had taken almost all of almost all the old dead stock clothing back to japan she have a a friend who works in uh fashion his father he believes a designer is from japan but when he was younger was one of those pickers that you know flew from japan to america and be driving around you know kansas or nebraska just buying up every you know levi's and some dusty old store somewhere uh <laughs> I think it also just goes to you, you know, the, the way people value things differently. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we have lost a lot of that sense. Uh, I mean, it's probably a global story, but particularly in America. And you know, sorry to be downbeat, but part of the appeal of vintage clothing is that so much of these things were made so much better 
decades oh, ago, absolutely. and they weren't luxury items. They're luxury items today, but they were things from just you know household names from catalogs that weren't being worn by people who were wealthy or obsessing over clothes. They were just wearing it because they actually needed, you know, a barn jacket to go to the barn or work boots for actual physical work. And, you know, a lot of that's been lost or if it still exists is made domestically. Now it really is kind of a luxury product that's bought by enthusiasts. Right. I mean, so much of that, um, in, in the, the workwear movement, um, it was especially big, what, a decade ago or so, Not maybe not as much now, but still there's a lot of emphasis on it. The old L.L. Bean stuff um, that uh, that were, you know, that were just practical outdoor clothing um, that people or, or the workwear they're talking about, you know, something that somebody would just simply wear to a blue collar job sort of thing. Uh, but but compared to the the kind of stuff that you would pay too much money for today in the mall, it was you know it was beautifully made. Uh, it was in the I guess in the common parlance today sustainable, right? And it was domestically manufactured, and uh, and we've we've lost touch with that so much. And and there's been this this desire not only to to find those old things uh, and sell them. But also to remake them, and then, and of course, as as sort of started started this discussion, that the Japanese have done uh, kind of led the way with that uh, as far as the their eye for detail and the and the quality that they've that they've produced. She just wrote something for a rap report on a brand that um, it's called Bryceland's. They have they started in Tokyo, they have a store in Hong Kong, they just opened one in London, but uh, they're very very much in that vein. And they're very international. Uh, the founders was an Australian and a Japanese man. And their clothing is all, you know, they're making it new, but it all has this kind of, it's all very vintage inspired. And they have maybe, you know, I think 12 or so sub labels all within their company called things like the Cowboy Label or Black Bean or Bryce Stands. And each of them represent are inspired by kind of a certain era of clothing, like the cowboy label is Western wear from the thirties and forties or, you know, kind of old Levi's what they have, uh, what they call black uh, bean is inspired by LL bean from decades ago. And is kind of this, you know, shooting fishing gear and Bryce down is the sort of, you know, seventies Eddie Bauer, you know, 60, 40 down jackets. And I think I wrote this in the article, but it almost kind of feels like they created this alternate universe where their brand has been around for, you know, 80 years. And these sub-labels are almost representative of, you know, the different things they're making all through the decades, except it's all new. Right. It's all new. It's all available and all and all uh, not not. Uh, particularly affordable too, but <laughs> you're going to, you're going to pay for these things these days. Yes. Yes. And that's, you know, I, th- I think, uh, you'll see this all the time, particularly in the era when there was more blogs or comments, but people always being, you know, the first comments and being, Oh, why is that so expensive? And you know, I, I don't ever want to, you know, uh, minimize the fact that yes, these things are expensive and that, you know, people may have trouble, find them affordable but there's also there is a way that we've put so much less value on you know paying for clothes and what we're paying for 
And there's been this kind of push to have everything just cheaper and cheaper in the materials, the production, uh, the decades, and it's resulted in value in clothing so much less. And I think that at an earlier time, it was valued more, part of which, you know, part of being that you owned fewer clothes. Uh, this right. is really switching to the past, but, you know, a century ago, you know, it, all the tailoring that was made, you know, was custom, you know, by a tailor because that's how it was made. And you didn't have, you know, four suits made a year. You had one suit made, the other Sunday suit, and you wore it and repaired it for, I don't know, 20 years. Uh, and, you know, I think there's argument to make in the past people who had, you know, lower incomes than today, they had things that were made of greater quality, greater endurance, and were thus valued much more. I think that that's, that's certainly the case. I mean, uh, so you, you look at, at, uh, at a store like that, and, and they're selling, you know, essentially a luxury good, but it's, it's, they're luxury goods that are based on common goods of the past. And as you said, it, sort of, it kind of highlights, in a sense, what people did have, the level of quality that people have. We have more in this, just in quantity. I mean, um, you know, you look at, at how uh, at my, the, you know, the drawers of my, of my dresser have too many things in them. I don't, you know, uh, they, the, it's, it's more stuff than I need. Um, but that's the sort of the mantra that people have, you know, uh, less, but better, you know, have, have, uh, fewer items of higher quality. And so it's, it's not really, uh, a matter of, okay, I'm going to buy this super expensive coat this for this season or this year. And then, then I'll toss that aside next year and I'll buy an equally expensive coat next year. No, you, you have that same coat for a decade or 20 years or 30 years or whatever, because it's made that well, uh, it's classically styled and, uh, and, and you, you know, you don't need, uh, to have those, that kind of turnover, really. It's just something that, it's something we desire and want, but it's not a necessity. Yes, going back to uh, the end of her shop, that was a very common thing of, well, so the store offered, uh, if you purchased something there, the alterations were included, and then you'd have a lifetime of free you know, repair and alterations to the tailor in the store. And when I was working there, I'd have someone call and uh, it was like funny where sometimes over the phone is realized, you know, the person calling is very elderly, but you know, people would say, oh, I had a jacket made and I want to see if we can bring it in for some alterations and, you know, ask them when they had it made. And they say, oh, I had it made a few years ago. I, it was, you know, 1998. <laughs> and, I mean, sometimes you brought these jackets that were just, you know, there were moth holes and tears and they still wanted these things patched up and to the point where you know, it would have been simpler to just have a new one made, but there was still so much value put in retaining and uh, continuing to wear what had been invested in previously. Well, you know, sort of a walking example of that is is Prince, I guess now King Charles, um, who sort of famously has all these these old clothes that he wears that are repaired and. Uh, if, if you can Google uh, his repaired shoes that uh, that, you know, the, these I'm sure bespoke uh, Oxfords that he had made probably by John Lobb or somebody uh, that he at some point had worn through the leather and they've actually gone in and they've repaired that, you know, and the, that he's still wearing this 
uh, one of the best dressed men in the world um, of, of, you know, you can get really of no higher stature and yet that's what he chooses to wear and has, he has a very different attitude than that sort of common modern attitude of the, you know, the fast fashion idea. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I wouldn't co-sign every, uh, every, every, every part of his behavior through life, but in terms of you know, his value for clothes and traditional cloths, big fan of uh, the current King. I know he has, what's yeah, oh, going on? I, well, I was just going to say, absolutely. He's, uh, you know, he, he has a, a very much an old school mentality about that, that, that I think the, the people who were calling into you about their, you know, their quarter century old Andover jacket, uh, they had the same idea. And that's just something that, that comes to them. I guess in the U S that would be Yankee thrift, right? Yes. Yes. That was very much on display at the end of her shop. And I think it's a, a value we could all uh, do better with giving up. You had an article recently that that I thought was intriguing. Uh, the the concept of it, I'd, l- I'd love for you to tell us some about it. Uh, it's for the William Brown magazine, and it was about a man who had the idea essentially of going kind of sheep to suit. Right? He was he he wanted to uh, to have his own sheep. He wanted to make his own tweed. He wanted ultimately to have a suit made from that. Uh, tell us a little bit about that about that guy and uh, and sort of the the project that he was undertaking. Yeah, sheep to suit is a great line that I wish I would have used myself. I didn't, <laughs> but I'll steal that at some point. But he was a, a friend of mine uh, who was living in the Boston area, and he decided he wanted to have a bespoke suit made by a bespoke suit maker named Frank Shattuck, who who operates in New York. But he didn't want to send away for fabric from Italy or England as you would with you know a high end bespoke suit like that. He wanted it to be American, to be local, which is difficult because there's very little textile making or particularly wool in the United States left. Uh, so he kind of had this incredible idea where he purchased uh, you know raw wool from a shepherdess in Vermont. And then he found a guy in Vermont who lives in a small town in Newbury, Vermont, and he has, I believe it was a, I think an 18th century loom that he looms. His kind of main business is making like coverlets for places like Mount Vernon, almost these kind of historical reproductions. And this guy was going to, uh, he took the wool, he dyed it naturally using wal- uh, walnuts by printed foraged and matter root. And uh, yeah, then had it uh, loomed on this antique loom, and it was just really you know it's, it's a cliche to say this, but this kind of farm the tail approach to tailoring, where he wanted to get as close to the ingredients as he possibly could, and in that span also got to have a hand in kind of designing what the colors would be, what the pattern would be in the cloth. And for all the parties involved, they were kind of doing this, just kind of brainstorming. They hadn't ever done this thing before. So there was a lot of back and forth to try and get the right color when the fabric was, when the wool was dyed. And I believe at the current point, uh, the fabric's been woven and they're waiting to get it in front of the bespoke suit maker. But for the purposes of the article, which is in a magazine called W.M. Brown, I traveled to Vermont about three hours driving between from Boston and got to witness the uh, fabric or the wool being uh, naturally dyed in this, you know, big bath of 
uh, mad root extract. And that was just fascinating on this little farm where they had, you know, rams and pigs and piglets. And, uh, we had an April of last year because it was just when the ground had finally thawed enough to actually go out there and build a fire, uh, for the dying. And I should, I should briefly plug up that and the article is in the magazine and you could find that, uh, Sid Mashburn stocks it and they have free shipping. So if you wish to read it yourself, it's a great way to check it out. Well, you know, sort of print magazines, that's, an, that's another thing that we're seeing a little bit of a revival in too. I think people, people are, they're, they're searching for authenticity. Uh, they're searching for a connection to something tactile and real. And all of these things I feel like that we've been talking about very much play into that. And it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, in the world of menswear or men's clothing, but uh, you know, there's so, so many different areas where, where it applies to. And, you know, I think magazine publishing is, is one of those obviously overlap with what, uh, with, with what you're pursuing as well. But um, you know, talking about, uh, the uh, you know raising sheep and and doing your own tweed and so forth. I mean that's really the origins of of Harris Tweed. I mean Harris Tweed was very much a literally a cottage business. I mean I guess it still is. It I mean that that uh, that all Harris Tweed has to be uh, has to be woven you know in the Hebrides in these uh, you know they're they're done in these these small homes and small home looms and. Um, and it, it's very much a, uh, you know, this as authentic as you can get and as traditional as you can get with people with their own proprietary uh, patterns that they make and, you know, that have been handed down and so forth. And, and from, uh, I'm sure originally, and, uh, and probably to some degree still from sheep that, that are raised right there. Mm-hmm. There's also uh one item I received I really enjoy this whole winter uh, is from the British brand Sunspell, and they call it their luxury British jumper. And what it is, it's kind of like a ribbed shaker style looking sweater. But every component of the sweater from uh, the sheep and where the wool was enloomed and uh, dyed all happened within 100 miles of their factory in England. And it's made from a certain sheep I had never heard of before, but uh, it's called the blue-faced, I'm going to say this wrong, blue-faced Leicestershire sheep, which is supposedly a type of breed in England known for its, you know, robustness with softness. And uh, I received one of the sweaters, and when I took it out of the box, it just smelled like sheep. And honestly, <laughs> not in a bad way. Like, the way I described it, it was like it was like a clean petting zoo. Like, you know, a petting zoo as a kid, there's about a certain kind of, like, scent of the, uh, just the sheep. Uh, the, the sheep, the sheep hair, and yeah, it's, it's just a wonderful product. Like I've, I, I can't ever have had a sweater, you know, from again from a major brand, from a retailer, you can buy it online, but it comes to you smelling like the animal, which is incredible, and the way it feels instructor is marvelous too. But just that sweater being kind of so close to the ingredients, to the animal, as it were, was something I really appreciated. 
Yeah, it's again, it's it's uh, there's a market, I think, for these things, clearly, um, you know, and I guess the, the, the question is the balance there. What's what's sustainable, not simply, I guess, environmentally, et cetera, but also economically, because you've got to be you know, you have to pay the bills to make these things eventually. Uh, now, I think there are some pieces, obviously, that are that are used as kind of uh, flagship items that maybe in and of themselves aren't, aren't bringing in a big profit, <laughs> but, uh, but they sort of, they're, they're out there to sort of uh, uh, enhance the brand visibility. But at the same time, you take somebody like Bryceland's, that's all they do, right? Drake's, that's all they do. And, uh, you know, there's really not a more uh, popular yet prestigious brand than Drake's in, in a lot of ways, I don't think. So, uh, so I, you know, th- we started off talking a little bit about sort of the doom and gloom, but there, there are some, uh, some rays of sunshine uh, cutting through that, uh, that does the cultural debris heart, uh, heart proud. Absolutely. I should mention, uh, I'm going to Philadelphia at the end of this month, which despite growing up like two hours outside of it, I don't know too much about, I just haven't really spent time there having lived in New England since college. But one of those kind of bright spots I see a friend named Glenn who has a store called Juniors. Uh, He founded the business in, I believe, 2020 and opened up a store this past spring in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. But it's kind of the answer to, you know, going and ask and your Ivy style comments, everyone bemoaning the lack of, you know, all the stores closing down, nothing made in America, et cetera, et cetera. And this guy, Glenn, who's you know, younger, I believe he's in his probably mid-30s, and he worked at these old-school menswear stores his whole career. He started at O'Connell's in Buffalo, where he's from. He worked at uh, H. Stockton in Atlanta, and then set out and created this business, Juniors, that's really, you know, along the kind of lines of the Andover shop, the old-school uh, men's store, where it's making, uh, you know, just trousers and Oxford cloth button downs in America, Shetland sweaters from Scotland, and then, you know, natural shouldered suits and sport coats in America from, you know, good English or Italian cloth, except it's, you know, the business is a few years old. The store is not even a year old. I look forward to visiting it at the end of this month, but, you know, it's, it's, it's someone starting that kind of haberdashery in 2020, which is marvelous. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a great it's a great thing to see, and uh, I, I've seen some of their um, you know some of their posts on Instagram. I follow their account, and uh, I think uh, a fellow that I've followed for some years, Chase, has works there, so um, or does some work with them at least. Um, and so it's it's uh, again it's it's there are signs of hope. I guess it's encouraging uh, when we see some of these things and, and maybe, um, and I hope that at least there will be enough interest in these things in all of these different uh, arts, which is, I, I think a lot of this really is, you know, is, is pulling from at least artisans um, that there'll be enough people out there who have the desire to pursue it and the willingness to spend the money on it, even if it's just, you know, a piece a year or so that, that it can, uh, these things can be supported and encouraged, mm-hmm. but 
So uh, not only do you do menswear, you also cover a, an area that uh, that is of some interest to me, and, and that is a, a lot of times you're covering the, the drinks industry. Um, which, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a nice accompaniment to the, to the clothes, to the menswear. Now you are not primarily a, a bourbon man. Uh, what is your, uh, what is your beverage of choice? Cool. It's a complicated question. I, I do love, I love bourbon. Uh, I would say when it comes down to it, it really forced me, you know, whiskey broadly is the favorite. You know, love my scotch, the Japanese whiskeys, but I always come back to bourbon and rye. I might say rye is the number one favorite because I love that kind of spicy kick, but bourbon is a really, it's a really close run thing. So you actually had uh, the opportunity to visit my, uh, my home state of Kentucky last year. What, uh, what brought you to, uh, to the lovely bluegrass state? Ah, so it was, it was a press trip. I was a part of with a uh, bourbon brand called Blade and Bow. And it was a great deal of fun because aside from, doing the things you expect to do on the kind of trip, you know, visiting the distiller. They're in the old, uh, let's say it around, Stitzel Weller Distillery. But they kind of gave us what, in my mind, you know, I kind of romantically envisioned as kind of the Kentucky experience, and they made that happen in terms of we went to the horse races one day and, you know, had a uh, professional horse, kind of uh, former horse trainer, better uh, Shar Group had to place horse bets. If I place bets on the horses, we were you know pulled our money together for maybe two hundred bucks. We we're briefly ahead, ended up losing it all, but still had a good time with the races. <laughs> uh, we went uh, pigeon clay shooting, which I had never done before, out on like a family farm somewhere kind of the western edge of the state, uh, where uh, this guy who is competitive nationally shooting set up as a wonderful range. And I started pretty miserably, but by the end of it, I was hitting every other uh, pigeon, which is pretty good for my starting point. My only big regret in the trip was having not worn my barber jacket to the shooting. <laughs> it was like kind of a rainy day. In fact, you know, they had little golf carts taking us from uh, blind to blind. And being the South, and as it should be, they had the ladies sit up front in these golf carts and the men sitting back and it was it rain the entire morning. So the wheels were just kicking up mud over everyone sitting in the back. And if there's ever a day of a barber, that would have been it. But sadly, I'm not, I'm not packing away. Still had a very good yeah. time. You you missed your chance. Well, that that's really just kind of a typical week for everybody in Kentucky. We we just we do that all the time. Well, so I, I, as I imagine. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that you were able to visit, and I've, I've actually not uh, not visited the old Stitzel Weller uh, uh, building that they've renovated. And I, I guess uh, Garden and Gun has a uh, has a club there. Yes, we had dinner at the Garden uh, Gun Club, which was fabulous, and you know, once again, just the all the kind of uh, Kentuckiana that I imagined with the you know taxidermied pheasants on the walls and. Uh, you know, old fashions coming out left and right. It was a very, it was a very fun night. Well, and you didn't even get to visit Lexington, which of course is uh, is the prettiest part of of Kentucky. So, so even more awaits for you. All right, that's, that's good news. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have to get you down here uh, to do a little bit of of uh, bourbon trail touring, uh, and there's you know some rye as well. But uh, I know you're a you're uh, you've written recently about white Negronis, and you're a bit of a Negroni man. Uh, what uh, tell me what a ne- white Negroni is? 
So it's a very broad category. Basically, it swaps out Campari for a category called like gentian liqueur, which is largely French uh, aperitif. And like Campari, it's bittersweet, but it's made with the uh, root of the gentian uh, plant. And there's different uh, makers of it. There's like a Vitze, Suze is most likely the best known one. But the key is swapping out the Campari for one of those gentian spirits. You still have gin, then you swap out the sweet vermouth for dry vermouth, hence the white, even though depending on the gentian, it kind of comes out more of like a, a very kind of like, almost like a very dull neon yellow is how I might describe it. <laughs> but yeah, it's a little more kind of bracing. It's a little more bitter. And for, you know, for my money, just as we approach Negronis being more saturated than ever in pop culture, which isn't a bad thing. I love Negronis, so I won't complain about them being everywhere. But the white Negroni, if you feel like being a little contrarian, is a great way to branch out. And to plug myself briefly, I did write a short article on it for uh, my friends at Drake's, which is on their website. They served the cocktail at the opening party of their new New York store. And I think it was like uh, September, which I attended. And the bar ran out of white Negronis and I think the first 60 minutes. Uh, they still had a lot of gin. So many, many gin tonics were consumed the night. But the white Negronis went very quickly. Uh, you, you sold them out for them. Yes, yes. Let me ask you one more thing. Do you ever, I, I, I ask you this as somebody who who is uh, a, a long uh, standing pr- practitioner of this. Are you much of a thrifter? Do you ever hit the thrift shops? Whew. I would say I do it more so as an admirer than a buyer. Um, going back again, this is too much information, but my I'm like six foot one, but my sleeves are 37 inches, which is like an XL or XXL. Oh, yeah. So basically almost nothing fits me, especially in right. thrift stores. But I think, you know, just I love going to thrift stores just kind of for the inspiration to see what's there, see what pieces have existed in the past. Um this is depending on you know what your definition of thrifting is, but probably my favorite single thing I own is a old Ralph Lauren uh, double-breasted camel hair polo coat that I bought on eBay maybe seven years ago. I'm not sure how old it is. Um, it's the old Ralph Lauren label. Someone told me once if that was from the aughts at some point. And so, again, it depends if you consider eBay thrifting or not, but... You know, that was a coat I had kind of dreamed of buying because I used to see the old men in Boston, kind of the old Boston Brahmins still around and wearing that kind of style of coat. And then it finally popped up after, you know, months of having uh, eBay alerts through my email. And I finally got that coat for myself. So sometimes I'll do very considered eBay thrifting. Um, I mentioned before Drake's and... I'm not too uh, proud to say I have many email alerts set up for various <laughs> terms. And when those things pop up on Grailed or eBay, if they're my size, I will, you know, to my first crack at those immediately. So you're, you're the one who's snapping up all the, all the Drake stuff. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I was, uh, I bought a few, a few Drake's items years ago before, they they really blew up when they were really just mainly still a, a tie and mm-hmm. scarf manufacturer. Back then, you could still find things from time to time uh, that would slip through the cracks that were affordable, and I I was able to get a few things back then. But I at this point, honestly, I don't even bother because I know 
that if it's got Drake's on it on eBay, that I might as well just um, just give up on that. So I my my searches on eBay have gotten more and more arcane uh, <laughs> to try to to try to try to find those uh, those hidden gems. But that makes it a little bit more fun. What's the thing you kind of put the work in? Uh, it's going back to this. There was a raincoat Drake's made that had very long sleeves. And it was wonderful. And I remember trying it on their store maybe a year ago. And then it popped up on their archive sale. I didn't buy it. I should have. And for months, regretted it. And then maybe two weeks ago, you know, one brand new of that size popped up on Grailed. And I scooped it up. That was an, an entire year of searching, you know, through e- you know, email alerts organically. A whole year of searching for that raincoat. And eventually it came to me. So sometimes it's all about persistence. Well, but I will also say this, and I, I applaud you for for sticking with with searching for what you want. But that that raincoat literally could last you the rest of your adult life. Yes, yes, that's the thing. Where Drake's is not inexpensive, but everything I've had from them, I've greatly enjoyed and have worn for years, and you know, has many signs of continuing far into the future. Well, Eric, I very much appreciate you being on Cultural Debris, and uh, where can people find you online so they can follow uh, your exploits and your uh, and your writing? Excellent, yes. So, uh, whew, the easiest way to do that, um, probably on Instagram, where I use Instagram, you know, kind of as a, you know, place to just kind of post what I'm writing about. I'll post my articles and links to those. And on Instagram, uh, it's just my name. It's Eric, E-R-I-C underscore Tordzik, T-W-A-R-D-Z-I-K. I also have a website. I'm kind of retooling it at the moment, but it's just erictordzik.com. I'll post my latest stories there too. But yeah, I would just uh, say keep an eye on both of those things. And I will put links to both of those in show notes so people can just pop over there uh, if they want a clickable link. I should mention one last time uh, oh, for the uh, story in print for W.M. Brown. That's in their uh, fall issue, which is available at you know some uh, fine magazine stores and also online. And again, the probably easiest way to do that is to find it on uh, Sid Mashburn's website. Very good. Well, I will. Uh, I'll try to uh, try to link that as well, Eric. I very much appreciate you being on, and we will keep an eye on you on Instagram. Right. Thank you so much, Alan. It's been a pleasure.